Welcome to the Wanderers History Podcast and to one of the final episodes of the Travelers in the 16th Century Mediterranean series, currently focused on documents from Excepta Cipria and looking at, at accounts of individuals who visited Cyprus in the 16th century during the Venetian and Ottoman rule after 1570 and the aftermath of the Fourth Ottoman Venetian War. Before we continue, I'd like to remind you to please hit that subscribe button if you haven't done so already. It really does help the channel a lot. So let us resume. Today we look at a document written by Girolamo Dandini, professor of theology at Perugia, sent in 1596 by Pope Clement VIII as a nuncio to the Maronites of Lebanon. From August 8th, when he visited Limassol, then we find out that he was in Larnaca and Nicosia until the 27th when he left for Tripoli. He would return to Larnaca on March 19th, 1597, so a year later, and departed for Venice on April 12th. So the text goes on to say, quote, August 12th, we arrived at Cyprus and anchored towards evening of Lemiso, where the inhabitants, and particularly the Turks, visited and explored our ship. We were there three days without going on shore because there was nothing worth seeing and there was no church where we could have said mass. About 11 o'clock on the 16th, we left for Salines, whither a good breeze carried us quickly so that we reached in two hours before sunset. It is about 600 miles from Candia, that being Crete, still owned by the Venetians back then to make a small pause there. The text resumes and says, The next morning, early, we landed on the beach and went straight to Arnica, about a mile away. It was a covent of Franciscan monks, a few of whom lived there for the convenience of some Italian merchants. Our vessel continued its journey to Alexandretta, and we had to wait some days in the island to find a ship bound for Tripoli. To lose no time, I left my companion, who had been unwell since we left Crete, to the care of these good monks, and the Maronite servant whom we had brought with us and accompanied an honest Venetian merchant to Nicosia. This the ancients called Letra and then Leucoto. It was formerly an archbishopric and the metropolis of the kingdom. It is only 24 miles from Arnica. I took this journey to get the best information I could about the spiritual wants of the Maronites who lived there in considerable number. Now, here is an interesting observation that, that Dandini makes about what happens in Ottoman Cyprus, so post-1570. He goes on to say, quote, Turks only are allowed to enter Nicosia and all other fortresses on horseback. Christians and others must alight at the gate and once within may remount their horses and go to their houses. Nicosia is a large city and well built after the oriental fashion, but in the last wars it was destroyed in several places. For it is now 27 years since the Turks took the city from the Venetians. It was thus that God chose to punish the sins and schisms of the Greeks of the island. The towers or belfries are ruined or without bells, which the Turks have turned into pieces of ordnance. End of quote. Now, this is an interesting observation which shows that even after what had happened 
during the Fourth Ottoman Venetian War, there was still rancor between Catholic Latin uh, clergy members and the Orthodox Greeks. We've spoken about this throughout the podcast and previous episodes. This was a significant factor which led to fractions, especially in Nicosia, a bit less so in Famagusta, where the Latin nobility were more prevalent and influent. But in Nicosia, it was a problem. And also in the rural parts, where because of Venice, because of the need for several resources, led to serious tensions and riots throughout the fairly brief rule, direct rule of the Venetian Republic over Cyprus. So we talk about the period 1489-1570. So it is interesting more than two decades after Venetian Cyprus fell to the Ottomans, but not surprising to hear this sort of language used by a papal legate about the Greek Orthodox inhabitants, which, of course, remained after 1570 on the island. Bit convenient that we don't get a mentioning of, quote, sins and schisms of the Latin Catholic uh, population of Cyprus, but such was the state of affairs and the opinions of Dandini, who goes on to say, quote, There are at Nicosia four kinds of churches, each of which I examined by itself. The Turkish mosques are the most important, both for their number and for the beauty and size of the buildings. I was not allowed to enter them, but I could see through its iron gates that the mosque, which was once the church of St. Sophia, was the finest and most stately. It is a large and spacious structure with many columns such as you would see in most of our churches no altars statues or paintings of any kind the walls are simply whitewashed by the door stands a fine fountain which was not there in the time of the christians the greeks have another kind of church of which i shall only remark that if a latin priest had celebrated mass therein they would think that all the water of the ocean were not enough to purify the church to such an extent that they wash the altar and even the whole building in their belief that the latin mass contaminates and profanes it their usage of consecrating with leavened bread and their other rites are sufficiently known they hate the latins worse than they do the turks the honest tradesman with whom I lodged told me they had refused absolution to one of his servants, a Greek by race, because he served a Frank, so they call those who followed the Latin rite. It will not be out of place to relate here another one of their superstitions. The same man was concerned. He had confessed a quite ordinary fault, but was repelled by the confessor who refused to absolve him, telling him he could not do so without calling in seven other priests. A little money brought these together. They made the penitent lie like a corpse on the ground, and the last reciting certain prayers gave him absolution. It is their custom to demand money for absolution and to refuse it when none is given to them, for they pretend to have a right to four or five crowns or even more to absolve quite ordinary faults. The penance they impose for the other great sins is to repel the penitent from communion for four or five years. They do so perhaps to show contempt and aversion for the Latin church, which enjoys yearly communion. For several more paragraphs, Dandini goes on to say how he found quite odd, peculiar, and 
makes his um, contempt quite obvious and clear. Uh, and then he finally goes on and resumes by saying that, quote, the Latins have at Nicosia only a small church, or rather a chapel, which is well kept up. It is served by a priest, an aged and honest man, but ignorant and illiterate. The Italian merchants who live there give him his food and clothes and provide the ornaments of the church. Lastly, the Maronites have also their church, which is in a poor condition, so ill-supplied with linen cloths, candlesticks, altar chalices, and in fact everything that I was really sorry for them. To learn what was their right, as well as that of other places of the island where they settled. I inquired without distinction from Italian, Greeks, and Maronites. I learned that they had but one right common to their whole sect, of which I shall speak hereafter, and that they lived under the same patriarch. I learned also that their homes were scattered over 19 villages or farms called Metoshi, Fludi, Santa Marina, and so on and so forth. He gives a huge list of names. He resumes by saying, quote, I was assured that they had eight churches at Metoshi, and that Mass was said on all festivals on the mountains and every day in the plains, unless the priests have some special duties of their own. This sect has usually a bishop there, but he had died and another had not yet been chosen in his room. In the next paragraph, uh, Dandini kind of resumes and has a rant about a Greek bishop. He says, quote, There is in the kingdom a Greek bishop who enjoys the receipts of the tribute which the others are obliged to pay. He exacts each year from everyone 70 aspers. The Janissary does not hesitate to give him a good beating to those who do not pay and shows no more quarter to bishops than to the others, according to the instructions of the receiver. He exacts beside 15 or 20 ducats from each priest on whom he uh, confers orders. Such is the pitiable condition to which are reduced the Christian subjects of the Turk, although there are fewer Turkish than Christians. For of 30,000 or more inhabitants at Nicosia, there are scarcely four or 5,000 Turks, and there are not 12 or 13,000 of these in all of the island, most of whom are renegades who have adopted Islam to enjoy greater quiet, so that it should not be hard to protect the island from the tyranny of the Turk and to re-establish the Christian faith. This text is, in a way, quite interesting. It would almost be undistinguishable from, say, a text from a diplomat that would have visited Cyprus 20 years after the fall to the Ottomans. Dandini goes on to say, quote, The island had formerly several fine towns, but today there remain only Nicosia and Famagusta, which preserve somewhat of their ancient grandeur. The rest are but villages. In none of them you can find families of old nobility. These are either extinct or left the island on its conquest by the Turks. And then there follows a long list and descriptions of the island's geographies, a bit of its ancient history, and um, the large variety of natural resources with a great tone of regret, I would say. It is worth mentioning that the papacy considered the fall of Cyprus as 
a moment of sorrow because they saw Cyprus as a bastion of Catholicism, especially in the Eastern Mediterranean. Dandini concludes that the kingdom has from all time had a variety of masters and Selim, the Sultan of the Turks, seized it in 1570 with an army of 200,000 men. But we have talked enough of Cyprus, let us pass on to Syria. And that's where the text ends. So all in all, this is a fairly interesting text. It shows a bit of the aftermath of the Ottoman conquest of what used to be Venetian Cyprus. And it also covers an interesting point of view, that of the history of the Maronite church in Cyprus, but also in the Levant. We saw like a, a significant presence in, in Cyprus. We also see what became the new order. And we, of course, see significant differences of how well-kept and imposing, say, the new mosques were to the uh, Orthodox or Catholic or even like Maronite church. Uh, but at the same time, it's worth noting that there was still, even more than two decades after 1570, a um, diversity of faith within Cyprus and Nicosia and other centers, I would assume, as well, because Cyprus also had a significant uh, Jewish presence in the uh, 15th and 16th centuries. So thank you for listening to this episode. I believe we have one or maybe two at most of this current series with Excepta Cipria. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. I am really looking forward to developing the new project. I'll tell you more in time. Uh, if you haven't su subscribed to the channel, please do so. It really does help the channel a lot. And until the next time, all the best.